Okay, we are in First in Samuel chapter 15, and we covered most of 15 last time, but I want to look at a portion, and, and so to remind you, Saul was confronted with his sin in First Samuel chapter 15. He was confronted with his sin for not utterly destroying the Amalekites. He left Agag the king, and he also left the best of the sheep and the oxen and didn't destroy them, although there was that haram curse that was very clear to them what that meant, that they were to destroy everything. So even though it may not be totally clear to us, it was very clear to them. Let's pick up from verse 24, 1 Samuel chapter 15. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So, what we see here is that that, uh, Saul, when he was first confronted earlier on in 15, when he was first confronted by, by Samuel... Samuel confronted him with, with this sin, and he was totally oblivious to it. He says, you know, what have I done? You know, I did what the Lord wanted me to do. And then Samuel says, well, what's this bleeding of the sheep in my ear? If you had destroyed all of them, why do I hear them? He says, oh, well, you know, the people just saved them to sacrifice. But remember, it was very clear what he was supposed to do. So when confronted again with this word from the Lord in 1 Samuel 15, 22, and 23, where he talks about what rebellion and the depth of what rebellion means. Then Saul says, I have sinned, in verse 24, I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin. So these words are ostensibly, uh, are, are really very good. I mean, they're, they're not bad words. He says, I have sinned, I've transgressed, and uh, uh, so, pardon my sin, and by the way, return with me that I may worship the Lord. And then Samuel says, no, I'm not going to return with you. And he turns to go away, and Saul grabs his garment, and it rips, as we had read last time. And he didn't intend on it ripping, but it ripped, and, and Samuel used that to say, the kingdom now has been torn from you. So remember, now in this chapter, he lost his kingship. Chapter 13, he lost the dynasty. Chapter 15, he loses the kingship. From this point on, he's no longer king. Because it says in in verse 23 of that chapter, he has rejected you from being king. It was in this chapter he loses his kingship in God's eyes. Though he's functionally being king until David later assumes that, David is not going to usurp that in any way. But in God's eyes, he's no longer king. And so you see what happens is, these words, and this is what I want to focus in on. He says in verse 24, I have sinned, I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord. I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now therefore pardon my sin. Now you would say, okay, well the man is now forgiven because he said, I've sinned, pardon my sin. Well, it's interesting to think about that. I have seen, and I'll, I'll give you an example. I have seen people confronted with their sin terrible things that they had done and confronted with it and they said, yeah, you know, that was wrong, I'm sorry. 
And there was absolutely no change in their life. Now, they said those words, I'm wrong, I'm sorry. Does that now somehow constitute repentance? We're told in the Bible to repent. And that means that we, we don't just confess our sins, but we turn from one direction to the other and we start going in a different way. Remorse is not repentance. Remorse is feeling bad for our sin. Now, let me give you name three people in particular. Pharaoh, Achan, and Judas. Each one of them were remorseful for things that they had done. But they were not repentant. Uh, we will see with Saul on several occasions, he will be confronted and he will, you know, all of a sudden it will come to him, oh yeah, I have sinned. You know, I was trying to kill you, David, and you, you didn't try to kill me back. I am sorry. Come back with me. And, you know, David one time does it and he throws a spear again and a second time and then David stops coming back. So what's going on here? Let's look at, at, at Pharaoh. Look, turn, to, uh, turn to Genesis, um, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 9. In Exodus chapter 9. And let's look at Pharaoh because a similar sort of thing. Ex- Exodus chapter 9. Because you will see this sometimes. Exodus chapter 9 verse... Um, in, in Exodus chapter 9, there was this, this plague of hail that came upon Pharaoh and his land. And it says in, in verse, in verse uh, 19 of Exodus chapter 9, Now therefore send, bring your livestock and whatever you have in the field to safety. Every man and beast that is found in the field and is not brought home, when the hail comes down on them, will die. The one among the servants of Pharaoh who feared the words of the Lord made his servant and his livestock flee into the houses. But the one who paid no regard to the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. And then it talks about how hail started coming down and thunder and lightning and it was, it was really quite vivid and it didn't fall in the land of Goshen where, where the Hebrews were living. But it talks about there was a group that really feared God, even among Pharaoh's people, even among the Egyptians. And they, got their, they told their servants and their livestock to come inside. But the ones who didn't fear said, don't worry about it. Now look, look in verse 27, what happens. Then Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. And the Lord is right, the righteous one, and I and my people are the wicked ones. Make supplication to the Lord for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail, and I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. And Moses said to him, As soon as I go out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord, and the thunder will cease, and there will be hail no longer, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. So, you know, these are interesting words. Here Pharaoh says, and he sent for Moses and Aaron. He says, I have sinned this time. The Lord is the righteous one. I and my people are the wicked ones. And Moses turns to him in this same passage. And he says, I know you don't fear God. But well, why don't we just accept it? I mean, the man said, sorry. Why don't we just accept it? He said he was sorry. It is like a man who is confronted with the sin of adultery. And he's confronted with this, and all of a sudden he's trapped, his wife is there, the pastor's there, and he says, okay, 
I'm sorry, all right? I'm sorry, so forgive me. Oh, okay, so that's done. Now let's just get on with it because he said he's sorry. Do you see what I'm saying? Does that constitute forgiveness? Does that constitute repentance? You know, is this what God is looking for? Here's an instance where Moses equates and he says, regardless of what you just said, I know that you don't fear God. So there's this element of fearing God in this. It says in, in, in Matthew 27 concerning Judas, after he had, had uh, uh, betrayed Jesus, after he had gotten the 30 pieces of silver, it says that he felt remorse for offering up Jesus. And he went to give the money back, and the Pharisees said, you know, keep your stinking money. And he took the money and he threw it over the wall, and he went and he hung him himself. Well, is he okay? Because he felt remorse. Remember, remorse is not repentance. There is something that God calls us to that, that really strikes us. And part of this is dependent on, on, on what we've done and not that God doesn't forgive. God does forgive. When we are in Christ, it's already forgiven. It's already forgiven. But there are things that constitute true repentance that sometimes go beyond, well, sorry. You see what I mean? There are things that need to be done at times. So, for example, this man who has been caught in adultery, what he is going to have to do, and I've told men this, is you need to go back to your wife and fall on your knees and say, please forgive me. And work with her over a period of years to renew that relationship to renew the trust in that relationship and get into counseling. Do that which is necessary that you bring forth acts, the Scriptures say, in keeping with repentance. That there's things that, that are manifest there. Let's look at that verse that we looked at a couple weeks ago in Proverbs 14. In Proverbs 14. And somebody read that out of, uh, uh, out of the, the, the uh, NIV, the New International Version, version Proverbs 14, verse 9. Fools mock at making amends for sin. You know, there's something that, that, that says that, okay, I have done this to this person. I want to do something to make it right. You see what I mean? You know, so I break somebody's window. Hi, broke your window. Sorry. No, it's different if I say, I broke your window. I want to pay for your window. I want to pay to have your window fixed. You see the difference? And this is what we see, this pattern that we see in Saul. It is a pattern in his life of when he is trapped, when he is so confronted with this thing, that he goes on and he says, he says, you know, I've sinned, I'm sorry, you know, please forgive me, everything's right, right? We're friends now, right? This is what he says to David on several occasions. We're friends now, right? Yeah, I was, I was chasing you. I was just about to kill you. But now I realize that you could have killed me, you didn't. So let's be friends. Let's just kiss and make up. Let's shake hands. But David rightly kept his distance from this individual. There is that aspect that we see in, in Scripture that goes beyond just, 
the simple. Beyond just the simple, oh, he said, he's sorry, that's it. Yes, from my standpoint, they apologize. But relative to what's there, it's how this thing is manifest. If you look at David, after he sinned with Bathsheba, there was a process there that he realized the fear of God. He went and he fasted and he prayed, seeking God to make things right. You read Psalm 51, the psalm that he went through after he had, had uh, uh, committed these acts of sin, how he was crying out to God. There was a relationship. There was a fear of God. This is what Moses said. I know that you don't fear God. So in other words, when I have sinned, do I really fear God? Do I fear what can come upon me when I sin? You know, the Scriptures say that whoever goes into another man's wife will in no way go unpunished. You know, if, if you really believe the Scriptures and you say God's Word is so true, you know, this alone, that verse alone should scare men into compliance. That verse alone should scare men into compliance. Is there a fear of God that I really believe? And that there is a fear of God and a respect and an honor for God. Lord, I don't want to dishonor your name. Lord, take my life if I ever start moving in a direction that's going to bring this type of shame upon my family. Lord, I would rather die. Is there a fear of God? This is why Moses says to Pharaoh, in spite of what you just said, that you sinned and you really blew it this time and you're wrong and God is right, in spite of that, you don't fear God. So, Saul says this, you would say, oh, so Saul said this, so Samuel should say, oh, okay, you said sorry, so, okay, everything's okay, you can be king again. It's all all right, you can be king again. And, you know, I'll go and, you know, do what you want me to do. But no, there are things that, that there, are, there are things and ramifications of our decisions go beyond this. Not to say that God doesn't forgive the heart that cries out to Him and says, Lord, forgive me. God does forgive. But there are things in keeping with repentance. Alright, and then, then uh, in the end of chapter 15, Samuel himself kills Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Now let's look into 1 Samuel chapter 16, reading from verse 1. Now I know the Lord said, now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. And I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said, and he came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, Do you come in peace? And he said, In peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. <clears throat> okay. So, 
here we see this picture of Samuel, how he is grieving over the things that have happened to Saul. So it wasn't like, well, you know, the guy got what he deserved. No, I mean, it hurt him so much. He loved Saul. He was the one who had anointed him at a young age and, and gave him this instruction. It really hurt him. So much so that God said, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king? You know, so God says there's, there's a time period. He doesn't say you never should have grieved in the first place. He says, how long will you grieve? In other words, there's a, there's a, a period to move on. You know, this verse from Ecclesiastes, a time, you know, you know a time to die, a time to, to, to seek, a time to give up for things that are lost. There is a season for things. And God said, that season now has passed. Let's move on. And this can be a great word for us. Sometimes we can get so caught and involved in something, and we just have this, this, this grieving over it to the point that it becomes a personal pity party about all that's happened. And God says, move on now. It's time to move on. I remember when I was... Uh, uh, a young believer, I was in college, I had moved into this discipleship program in this house with these, these other Christian guys, and one guy, and you know, I was a cocky young college student, and, and uh, I did love the Lord, but, but I was still cocky. And one guy calls me aside, and he was more like, like the senior guy in the house, the guy that everybody looked up to as, yes, this guy knew more about the scriptures than the rest of us, and he was really a good guy, and the rest of us were not as good as him. So he, he was the good guy in the house. And he called me aside one day, and he, he pointed out this, this attitude of pride that I had. And he pointed out in a very gracious way. He showed me a couple of scriptures, and it was like, boom. It really hit me that this guy was right. And I was, I was hurt by that. I wasn't hurt... That what he said to me, I was hurt by the fact that it was true. It was, he was absolutely right. And so I was, you know, just kind of sneaking around and trying to be really, really humble. And it, I was just beat up by this. And then after a few days, he said to me, he said, you know, Jim, it's enough. I said, well, you know, I, I really was walking in pride. and I don't, He said, enough. Get on with it. Get on with your life. And he was right again. He was right again. I had to get past this thing. You see what I mean? So just because you get this revelation of, of something that you've done wrong and it hurts you, this is a good thing. Because, you know, it says in James, it says, you know, uh, mourn and weep, James says, you sinners. So there's a time for mourning and for weeping. But then, after a while, you've got to get on with your life. Because you can get stuck there. And this defeats some believers. Some believers, well, no, I'm just too bad. I could never, never... You know, I, I, and you just want to slap them and say, wake up, wake up, you're okay. God loves you, God's forgiven you. You really feel bad about this, I understand that. Now let's move on. It is time to move on. Do you know what I'm saying? Have you ever been there? This has never happened, it happened to Dave, all right. Dave, everything that's happened to me has happened to Dave. He's, he's the only yes man that I've got in here. It will happen to you someday. All right. So, and, so God says to him, get over it now. Move on. He says, I've rejected Saul. That's a fact. Let's move on. 
He says, fill your horn with oil. Go, I'm going to send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. I've selected a king for myself among his sons. Now remember, earlier on, Samuel had proclaimed, earlier on, back in, in, in uh, chapter 13, he knew that Saul had lost the dynasty, that someone else was going to be chosen king. That was in, in, in uh, chapter, chapter uh, 13, verse 14 and onward. So, He knew that a king was to be chosen. He didn't know who it was. Now, all of a sudden, he knows a bit more about who it's going to be. It's going to be one of the sons of Jesse. Well, why didn't God tell him back in chapter 13? Because God didn't want to. God is God and He decides. There's a lot of things that God don't... God doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell, you know, He doesn't, hasn't told you exactly where you're going to work when you get done with school, right? He hasn't told you exactly how much you're going to make. He hasn't told you exactly who your spouse is going to be. I wish He would just tell me and then I'd, I'd be comfortable, okay? Well, He's not going to tell you. He doesn't work like that. He leads a lot. He leads our lives so that we, there's this expectation, there's this excitement of being able to commit our lives to Him. He doesn't give us all these details. So now, all of a sudden, he reveals a little more. It's going to be one of the sons of Jesse. Then Samuel says, well, there's a problem here. How can I go? Because Samuel is in Ramah. He has to go through Gibeah of Saul in order to get to Bethlehem. That's the route. That's how you get there. He says, how can I go? When Saul hears of it, he'll kill me. I've got to walk there with a heifer and you know, say that I'm going to anoint a new king and I'm going right through Saul's home city, Gibeah of Saul, on my way to Bethlehem. When he hears of it, he'll kill me. And God has a solution for that. God, the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. That's it. Just say, there's going to be a sacrifice to the Lord. He never says that you have to... He says you don't have to reveal that you're going to be anointing a new king. So we see that secrecy is not necessarily deceit. It was not for Saul. It was not Saul's concern. So secrecy is not necessarily deceit. I saw this happen. A a guy had a a, a, a trade secret in a company. Guy had a trade secret from in a company, and these people not in the company kept questioning him about it, and he told them. I said, "Why did you tell them? That's important to your company." He says, "Well, I couldn't lie." I said, "You just don't tell them. You don't tell them. That's not a lie not to tell them." You see what I mean? So here's this Christian guy. He feels that when they're questioning him, it's a lie if he doesn't tell them the formula for this chemical. This, this you, you, you see what I mean? Secrecy is not necessarily deceit. It might be if somebody has a right to know. But in this case, this person had no right to know. And God says, you don't have to tell him. Just say you're going to have, there's going to be, a, 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 you're going to have a sacrifice. Take a heifer and say, I've come to sacrifice. You have sacrifices for many things. And in fact, when he gets to Bethlehem, he doesn't say, I'm going to anoint the king today. He never does. He never reveals what he's doing. And in fact, there's anointings for all sorts of things in the Scripture. Even after he anoints David, he never reveals. He never publicly says what the anointing was. I don't even know if David knew what it was for. He was anointed, but it was never said at this time. He says, when you go there, invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you, in verse 3, you shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. 
and you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate you. Now, why wouldn't God just tell him, oh, by the way, you're going to be anointing not just one of the sons of Jesse, there happen to be eight of them. Tell him it's going to be David. Why doesn't he tell him? I don't know. God doesn't reveal many things to us. We go with it, and he reveals it. If God would just tell me, I would do it. Well, he's not going to tell you. You just get moving. You go. Many things he doesn't reveal to you. You go in the direction that he's leading you. You go in a scriptural direction. You go according to his commandments, and he reveals things to you. you know, and I, I, This happens to young men all the time. You, you know, they, they want to get married, and every young girl they see, they're like, maybe that's my wife. Maybe that one's going to be my wife. Have you ever been there? Has that ever happened to you? Dave, has that ever happened to you when you were young? <laughs> Probably. And, and, but you don't know. You don't know. And I've seen guys get in this, just dizzy over this. He said, I, I think this is the girl God has for me. And they're getting sick over this thing. I said, just lighten up. If it's to be so, it will, you know, things will naturally happen. You'll get to know her better. But like this, she'll never want to get to know you. You know, you're a basket case. Just lighten up. So he says, you go, and then I'll, I'll show you what you should do. So Samuel goes, and he says, we're going to have a sacrifice to the Lord. They get a little scared. They said, do you come in peace? Because remember, Samuel is also a judge. Even though Saul had been king, Samuel has this very high place. And they're wondering, you know, is he going to call down judgment on Bethlehem? They had no idea. Just don't worry. It's all right. No problem. We're just, we're just going to have a, a, a consecration. He said, we're going to have a sacrifice. Go consecrate yourselves. But as far as Jesse and his family, it says... Samuel consecrated Jesse and his sons. So consecration was, was some ceremonial washing, and he invited them to the feast. Okay, picking up in verse 6. And when they entered, he looked at Eliab, and he thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab. And he made him pass before Samuel. And he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Next Samuel made Shammah pass by. And he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. And behold, he's tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and he brought him in, and he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So, we have this, this amazing passage. So Samuel is there, and it says, in, in, so Samuel's there with Jesse. Jesse is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. So Ruth, we had gone through the book of Ruth last year. So Ruth the Moabitess marries Boaz. They have a son named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse. So David is the, is the great-grandson of Ruth the Moabitess. That's why we see in the New Testament she's in the lineage of David. It says that, that uh, um, 
in verse 10, Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Not chosen these. And then it turns out the eighth son, David, has been chosen. You know, there's a passage in the, in the genealogies in Second Chronicles where it lists the sons of Jesse in Second Chronicles chapter 2. And when it lists the sons of Jesse, it only lists seven sons. David as being the seventh in that list. But here, there are clearly seven sons before you get to David, and then David. And people say, oh, here's a mistake in Scripture. Oh, the Bible's all wrong. No, the Bible's right. And when it, it, it lists the seven sons, one of the sons' names is not listed in Second Chronicles. Probably that son died. And you say, well, why wouldn't it list it? Because this is normal. So say a man has five sons, and the sons are growing up, and one of the sons dies. And five years later, somebody says to him, how many sons do you have? The man says, I have four sons. Because one of them died. He could say, I, I had five but now I have four because one died. You can go through that, but generally you don't say that. You generally, you know, one dies, you, you die. And, and so in Second Chronicles, it's listing, so one of these sons had apparently died by the time it's being documented in Second Chronicles. And so that, that son escaped. This is commonly done, especially when one of the children dies fairly young. You know, you, you, don't, you don't say it. You don't mention it. So you, you might say, uh, how, many, how many siblings do you have? Oh, there are four of us. Well, there may have been five at one time, but you don't go into that. So this is actually a very normal way of responding. So there were eight sons. So here comes... So, so here's what happens. So, so they, they go to this feast, and Samuel says, we're not going to eat. Let, let's first have this anointing. And he sees Eliab in verse 6. So when he entered, he sees Eliab, and Eliab, you know, is the oldest. It says, you know, he saw his appearance in verse 7. He saw the height of his stature. You know, Eliab, the oldest, the oldest brother of, can you imagine the oldest brother of eight? I mean, my older brother really thought that he was something because he was older than me. But imagine the oldest brother of eight brothers. So he really thinks he's something. So he comes out, you know, there's going to be an anointing. It's obviously, for one of Jesse's sons, it's got to be Eliab. And, right, so he comes all, and Samuel looks at him and thinks, oh yeah, it's got to be Eliab. He sees the height of his stature, he sees his appearance, he says, this has got to be the man. I mean, he's the man. He's got it all together. And God says, no, not him, because I don't look at these sort of things. I look at the heart. So why didn't, Saul, why didn't God reveal this to Samuel? Because Samuel was learning a lesson here. He was learning that God doesn't look at the exterior of a man. He had already had a great exterior, exterior of a man in King Saul. God was looking at the heart. And because of that object lesson for Samuel, we all have that object lesson too. That God doesn't look at the exterior. So when, when I feel that I'm ugly, when I feel that I'm not... I'm, I'm not tall enough or strong enough. And, you know, I wanted to be a football player. I really did. Even to this day, I want to be a football player. But I, I have a little problem. And my little problem is I'm not tall enough, I'm not strong enough, and I'm not fast enough. But my heart, I've got all the heart to be a football player. I really do. But there's these little items here that, you know, that are hard to deal with. But God speaks to me in that and says, your heart is what I look at. 
It is your heart. It is not these exterior things that the whole world says, it's what you look like. It's how big you are, how strong you are. Are you the ladies' man? Are you the life of every party? You know, are you the great talented one? Are you the great athlete? God says, I don't look at that. I look at the heart. Because He did not reveal this to Samuel, I learned that object lesson through this. 2,000 years later. 3,000 years later. 3,000 years later, I'm learning this. We learn so much by God not just dumping on us our whole lives. We learn, we grow. And then, and then you see Abinadab comes. And Abinadab is like, yes! I knew Eliab wasn't any good. And Abinadab comes. And, Abinadab, and God says, no, not him either. And then Shama comes. And Shama comes and, no, not him either. And he gets right down to the end of the list. And so Samuel's scratching his head. He said, God told me it was one of the sons of Jesse. This all your sons? Yeah, this is all my sons. You got it, right here. He says, is this all of me? There is the youngest, David, but it couldn't be him. He's out in the field with the stinking sheep. He's out there. You don't mean him. And Samuel says, go get him. And being the youngest brother in a family, I really like this. But look at, look at what Jesse did. Jesse didn't even invite David to the feast. There was a chance here for a great offense. So that when David eventually becomes king, you know, how do you think he feels against his father? You didn't even think I was worthy to come to the anointing. But no, I mean, David just gets over it. You could, you could harbor all sorts of offenses against your parents for things that they didn't do. And, and, and I, there are so many things that I didn't do for my children that hurt them, that I should have done. So many things. There are so many things that I said that I shouldn't have said. And if they wanted to, they could harbor all sorts of offenses against me. David harbored no offense. In fact, he watched out for his mother and father quite specifically. When he ran to the cave of Adullam, before he was running in the wilderness, he took, them, he took them across the river and he put them in the care of a friend of his who was outside of the kingdom of Israel. He says, watch over my mother and my father. Your parents will do many things to hurt you unintentionally. And once in a while they might even do it intentionally. But you've got to get past this because remember, whatever you sow, that you shall also reap. If you harbor unforgiveness toward your mother and father, your children will harbor it against you. Say, oh no, I would never do that to my child. That's exactly the thing you will do to your child. If you say, I will never do that to my child. That's exactly the thing that you would do. The thing that you should say is, Lord, may I never do that to my child. Lord, may I never do that to my child. That really hurt me, what my parents did. May I never do that to my child. But remember, whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap. If you harbor unforgiveness toward your mother and your father for something that they have done, your children will harbor unforgiveness toward you. And if you think that no, couldn't happen, I've learned what not to do from my mother and my father, that's exactly the thing that you will do. 
the best thing to do is cry out, Lord, may I do right by my children. May I never do that to hurt my children. It is difficult to be a parent. Very difficult. And many times, you know, they'll grab onto something that you never intended to happen or that you never even really did. They just perceive that you did this. Because the relationships are close. But remember, release these things. David released it. And they call him in and he says, you know, he was, he was ruddy, which means that he was red. Even to this day, red hair is unusual in Israel. There are red-haired people, for sure. But it is a lot less common because there's a lot of European influence now. Because remember, so many of the Jews, in, in, in the, the, uh, um, the Ashkenazi Jews lived in Europe. But in that day, it was especially unusual. But, he was, he, but he was, it says that the boy was handsome and he had beautiful eyes. And so he must have been very handsome. Remember, the Bible calls things out. But he was a young boy. He was probably around 15, 14 or 15 at the time. And we can get that by the ages of his brothers. Uh, He may have been a little bit younger than that at this time. We know that when he confronts Goliath, he was probably about 15, assuming that his parents had had a child every year, which was not uncommon to assume. And David, being the eighth child... Uh, he would be about 15 or so, 14 or 15, because the three older brothers followed King Saul, so he had to be over 20 to follow King Saul, and then five below 20. And that would make him, at the most, when he had confronted Goliath, 15. So maybe here he was a few years younger than that. We don't know the time span. But you see that this anointing takes place, and the Spirit of God falls upon David in an unusual way at this point. Not that he didn't believe God, in God, but now the Spirit of God falls upon him in an unusual way. And we'll pick it up there next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. It is so good. Thank you, Lord, that we learn from the scriptures that you teach us. And Father, I pray that your blessing would be upon these young people, that you would work these things in their lives, that they wouldn't harbor unforgiveness toward their parents. Even if their parents had done things that ended up hurting them, that they wouldn't harbor this. And Father, I pray that you would you'd so move in their lives that they would, they would learn to accept the way you lead them. Will you give just small bits to carry them along Father, I pray that they'd learn to be content in this and content with your leading. 